Welcome to At Your Leisure from Weekend Edition. I'm Scott Simon. Thanks so much for joining us. Coming up, an author on children's books and how adults can gross out children if they really work at it. Frank Gifford on a great game, but a sad fumble. Our Howard Bryant on how economic crisis is affecting big-time sports. And Dave Barry and Rollerblade Barbie make a bonfire in a middle school classroom. But first... This week's news, of course, has been dominated by events in Mumbai, but even in an age of terrorism and economic meltdown, these past few years have seen a proliferation of popular satire, from a rejuvenated Saturday Night Live to The Onion, late-night monologues, internet satires, and most prominently, The Daily Show. President Bush has frequently been the object of such satires. How will satirists fill the vacuum that he leaves behind? Our friend Kevin Blyer is a writer for The Daily Show and joins us in our studios. Kevin, thanks so much for being with us. Oh, it is, I assure you, my pleasure. And actually, if I might echo your earlier sentiments, this is one of those weeks that makes you long for the days of moose burgers and the silly campaign season, but nonetheless. Yeah. yeah. Um, satirists have had the advantage of a president who himself makes jokes about his struggles, <laughs> right, with language and pronunciation. But what happens now? Well, I don't know if you read about this, but as, as it happens, uh, President Bush was voted out of office. Can you believe that? After <laughs> yes, I... after eight years, they just kicked him out. So well, I think there's a either, constitutional well, provision. I was going to say, he yeah. must have either been doing a terrible job or have a very poor understanding of the American, American electoral process. Um, what happens now? Well, we, we tread forth uh, yeah. and we and, you know, it might be uncharted waters. As it happens, I was just in uh, at the University of Cambridge in England, where, as you know, Satire, I believe, was invented yes. in some lab in Cambridge, uh, Maudlin College, I imagine. Yeah, and Sir, Sir Nigel Satire. There you go, Sir Nigel Satire. He's, he has been knighted twice over now. Yeah. Um, and even the British students there were asking me, how, after Bush, how can you possibly continue to do what you do? Is satire over? Well, I am happy to report to you, of course, it is not over. It lives on. And I kind of feel, and the country might be behind me on this, that after eight years of Bush jokes... Mm-hmm. That is brush that has been somewhat thoroughly cleared. <laughs> so, you know, we at The Daily Show certainly are eager to look forward and excited about what we can accomplish, you know, in, in I guess, the first 100 days of Obama, Obama administration if we all work together. <laughs> Without giving away any trade secrets, what do you, what do you see as, as this incoming president's most uh, vulnerable uh, points of, of potential satiric Oh, I'm happy to give away trade secrets, sir. Yeah. Uh, well, first of all, he's a politician. So anytime uh, you have a politician acting like a politician, you're in good stead. He happens also to be a politician who believes that he should be in charge of running the world. So anyone who stands that tall is likely to bump into something. Um, he may, in fact, do something out of character and even absurd, like, oh, I don't know, uh, appoint a Clinton to his cabinet. That couldn't possibly happen, but it might happen. <laughs> a team of rivals and all that. Um, you know, I do think that there are some handles that is to say, satirically speaking, for Obama. Yeah. He does have very lofty rhetoric, without a doubt. Mm-hmm. Um, he has kind of claims of a Midas touch. Um, you know, when he was on our show, we asked him if he would, in fact, hope up some everyday phrases just to see if he has that Midas touch with everything he says. In fact, I think we asked him to say, hi, I'm Barack Obama, and I'm calling to ask if you're happy with your cell phone service. <laughs> hi, I'm Barack Obama. <laughs> and ladies and gentlemen, Edie Bukel and the New Bohemians. Um but, you know, it is the case that we, I think early on we did a joke about when he was giving a speech and it was it was rather moving and he turned to the side in a way and we said, look at that man. He's not running for president. He's running for coin. And we mocked him up on a coin. And it is the case that the audience in in the studio was a little bit alarmed. They didn't quite know how to respond. So John, 
characteristically turned to them and said, you know, it's okay to laugh at him, you know. He will have faults, he will have flaws. Um, and, and it's our job to essentially make sure that everyone knows them. You know, he's complicit in all this, in a, bit, in a, in a way, if I yeah. might. You know, he, he, if you might recall, for the last two weeks of the, of the campaign, yeah. he actually was listing off, in 12 days at this defining moment in history, you can vote for change. In 11 days at this defining moment, you can vote for change. Mm-hmm. In 10 days, in 9 days, it was a, a change countdown to hope explosion. <laughs> and then even on election night, he said, you have voted for change. Of course, three days later... At his first news conference, yeah. he said, "Ladies, it's only been, ladies and gentlemen, it's only been three days. Please give me yeah. some time." Uh-huh. So he's been complicit in the in the overpromising, but it's an inevitable consequence. Let, let me ask you a market question. Which uh, is pardon me, a market question. Market question. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Mort Saul, who ah, be- yes. became famous for doing satire during the latter Eisenhower era. Uh, now he acquired a following among many liberals. And he told us once that, that when Jack Kennedy is elected and he started mm-hmm. doing jokes about the Kennedy administration, a lot of his former fans got upset with ah. him. Do you at The Daily Show and other places worry about alienating some of your fans? Well, to be frank, I'd hope that we alienate at least a couple every night. <laughs> <laughs> for general purposes right? of taste, right? Of yeah, course. Right, yeah. um, it is. The, I, I'm not worried about it. Mm-hmm. Um, if I may be, if I may be candid, one thing I'm concerned about is that it, when and if we start as on a regular basis making fun of Obama and then have an off night, mm-hmm. as we have had, uh, we, we might those those fans might say, "See, look, I told you they couldn't make fun of Obama." But if I'm to accept your larger premise yeah. of, okay, you know, let's say that for the last ten years, the whole decade that the Daily Show has been on the air, um, even before Obama, we at the show have had one goal, and that is to to take a an elitist terrorist socialist Muslim and elect him president. <laughs> All right. Well, I best I guess I would say having done that, we'll just have to turn to the next goal, which is to take a communist Christian scientist and elect him emperor. <laughs> and now I realize an emperor is not an appointed position, an elected position, but yeah. we'll just have to work that much harder. And in doing so, perhaps we'll gain some new fans and look forward to alienating them as well. And please let it be noted that I'm saying this all with tongue-in-cheek. <laughs> okay, good. I'm glad you added that. And uh, and should we give them your email address, oh, too? Please. Because, or, or should I just pass them just along? Just write Care uh, of New York, New York. I don't think I have the time. All right, Kevin, thanks so much. Oh, I assure you, this has been a horrible mistake, and you're more than welcome. <laughs> Kevin Blyer of The Daily Show, thanks so much for being with us, uh, talking about the uh, prospect for the future of satire in an incoming Obama administration. I ask, since you're in the studio with us, Kevin, I ask you to note how I'm talking my my way down to the clock. This I is see. What, this is yeah. This is what we call professional. You know, yeah, I hope so. Also, a note that we launch our YouTube channel today with a video conversation with NPR's Juan Williams. You know what the, the ironic thing is here? Of course, Clinton had the cabinet that was intended to look like America. The conservative Bush's cabinet was even more diverse than Clinton's. Now you come to Obama, and people, for example, in the Congressional Black Caucus and like, are already throwing up their hands and saying, wait a second, we thought this was going to be the most diverse cabinet ever, and we don't see it. The segment is called Open Mic with Scott Simon. Who at NPR would you like to hear on Open Mic? Tell us on our blog, npr.org soapbox, and just follow the links to our YouTube channel, where you can see Juan Williams and other Weekend Edition video blogs. Children's author John Sheska has written a memoir called Knucklehead. He says the book is an attempt to answer the question, where do you get your ideas? And Mr. Sheska has had plenty. His two dozen books include 
the Stinky Cheese Man, the popular Time Warp Trio series, and this year the Library of Congress named John Cheska the nation's first ambassador to children's literature. From New York, Tom Vitale has the story. John Cheska's memoir, Knucklehead, is about the author's childhood in Flint, Michigan, as one of six brothers. In one chapter, he writes about his own experience learning to read, from brightly colored books, about a strange alien family. When I read the Dick and Jane stories, I thought they were afraid they might forget each other's names. Because they always said each other's names. A lot. So if Jane didn't see the dog, Dick would say, Look, Jane, look. There is the dog next to Sally, Jane. The dog is also next to Mother, Jane. The dog is next to Father, Jane. Ha, ha, ha. Sheska says Dick and Jane never made him want to read. What did whet his appetite for reading was The Cat in the Hat by Dr. Seuss and the funny parodies in Mad Magazine. When Sheska began writing his own fiction as a graduate student at Columbia University, he says his heroes were writers who played with language and new ways to tell stories. Borges, Cervantes, Kafka. After he got his degree, when Sheska started teaching at a Manhattan elementary school, he brought his postmodern sensibility with him. And I remember telling my second graders the basic metamorphosis story, saying, like, what about, what if a guy woke up one morning and he was a bug? Wouldn't that be weird? And they loved that. And I think that was the trigger that made me think, like, oh, man, here's my audience. They're just a lot shorter than I ever thought they might be. So Sheska started to write funny, twisted stories, just like the ones he used to write in grad school, only with kids in mind. His first book in 1989, with illustrator Lane Smith, was The True Story of the Three Little Pigs, told from the wolf's point of view. I don't know how this whole big bad wolf thing got started, but it's all wrong. Maybe it's because of our diet. Hey, it's not my fault wolves eat cute little animals like bunnies and sheep and pigs. That's just the way we are. If cheeseburgers were cute, folks would probably think you were big and bad, too. Three years later, Sheska's next book, The Stinky Cheese Man and Other Fairly Stupid Tales, became a bestseller. He's one of the funniest writers to come along for children, and I think he has a way of reaching children by making them feel they're part of the joke. Leonard Marcus is the author of a history of children's literature called Minders of Make-Believe. He says the sophisticated humor in Sheska's early picture books made them an immediate hit with kids. I think it was uh, very refreshing for a lot of kids to feel that someone was making books for them which view them as, you know, on their own level. There's something wonderful about that for a child. Now, this neighbor was a pig, and he wasn't too bright either. He had built his whole house out of straw. Can you believe it? I mean, who in his right mind would build a house of straw? So, of course, the minute I knocked on the door, it fell right in. Christy. She said that he might have just sneezed, but... Not like that in like the real story. So are you saying this isn't the real story? Well, I really don't think that anybody really knows. At the Glenhead School in suburban Long Island, Sandra DeRay's fifth grade class is using Sheska's story to talk about point of view and the nature of truth. They think that um, the wolf is a bad guy because wolves eat pigs. DeRay says teaching John Sheska's books makes her job easier. One, I'm interested in it, and anything that I'm interested in is will make it easier for me to teach because I want to teach it. And the children can relate to it. They understand the language and they get it. Ten-year-old Carly Rovner certainly gets it. All his books kind of connect because all the characters are either running away from something 
we're running to find something. But it's interesting along the way. Like if they make stops, it's either funny or interesting and you just want to keep reading. Getting kids to keep reading is John Cheska's mission. Cheska is the Library of Congress's first national ambassador to children's literature. Oh, man, I should have brought my fanfare. I usually have a fanfare when I come in a room. (laughs) Some fifth graders in San Diego wrote this thing for me, and it is spectacular. So after a fanfare, I come in and I can pretty much do anything. (laughs) And the best part is I'm the first national ambassador, so I can kind of make it up as I go along. But the basic job is to promote children's literature of just trying to get kids motivated to be readers by connecting them with a book they like. John Sheska says the key to getting kids to read is not to force-feed them books like Bad Medicine, but to let them read what they want, comic books, magazines, graphic novels, and eventually they'll move on to some great writing and great reading. And Sheska has done his part to make books kids like. After the success of his twisted fairy tales, he wrote funny books that made math, science, and history accessible. His Time Warp Trio series, about three kids who time travel, was adapted for children's television. Um, excuse me, but have you seen a dorky-looking kid with big glasses and pointy hair? Um, mister? Who dares to poke Napoleon? And then the Time Warp Trio was really that my, my same initial idea of, like, let's write something kids really want to read in a form that they can read. And then I thought, what a cool thing, just like have them go anywhere in history. And I can just plug this great historical knowledge and use that. And, then, and kids don't even know it. It's kind of like a painless inoculation. <laughs> John Sheska says kids are always asking him where he gets his ideas. He says he wrote his memoir, Knucklehead, to answer that question. Yeah, I think I get those ideas from being the second oldest of six boys. And you had to find some way to really like stake out your territory at the dinner table. And my way was to, like, say something funny and then make a grab for the chicken while everybody was laughing. According to his publisher, John Sheska has sold just under 9 million books. The 54-year-old author says he's flabbergasted by his success and how lucky he is to get up each day and go to work making up wild stories for kids. And then if the day gets really bad, I can always pull out fan mail. Who else gets mail where kids write to you and say, Dear Mr. Sheska, We were supposed to write to our favorite author, but Roald Dahl is dead, so I'm writing to you. (laughs) John Sheska says now he's working on a series of books for preschoolers called Truck Town and a multimedia project for older kids called Spaceheads. And right in the middle of the pile of straw was the first little pig, dead as a doornail. He had been home the whole time. It seemed like a shame to leave a perfectly good ham dinner lying there in the straw. So I ate it up. Think of it as a big cheeseburger just lying there. For NPR News, I'm Tom Vitale in New York. And you can see a photo of John Sheska from when he was in the fourth grade, and you can read a chapter of Knucklehead that details a disastrous family car trip on our website, npr.org. We're at the Cutler Ridge Middle School in Cutler Bay, Florida, in the science classroom of Charmaine R. Wilson for... A novel test, if you please. Dave Barry, who writes so many books that he needs partners, has a new book for young readers and their parents with Ridley Pearson, the thriller writer. Their new book is called Science Fair. Now, Science Fair is the story of Toby Harbinger. Of course, the stuck-up kids in class call him Hardbonger. 
who needs to win first prize at a school science fair because there are large, hairy, smelly, menacing men from the Republic of Crip... Crip Kaburshistan. Kaburshistan, thank you. Kaburshistan. <clears throat> Thanks very much, uh, who are after him. And they have a plan to subvert the United States by using Toby's school and science fair for their own nefarious purposes. Dave Barry joins us here in Florida. Thanks so much for being with us, and thank you to all the students here. Did you folks have a chance to read the book? Yes. yes. Like it? Yes. All right, well, that's it. That's all. Yeah, I, I yeah. loved it, yeah. Scott. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Oh. What, what, what made you decide to put a science fair at the, at the center? I always felt science fair is one of the more stressful parts of any child's existence, any parent's existence. I always thought that if we want to raise money for the school systems, all we need to do, we don't need taxes. We just need the principal to bring the parents in the first day of school and say, if you don't give us the money we need to run, a, uh, to run the schools this year, we're going to hold a science fair. And they'll, they'll get the money. The, the parents often wind up doing Because the parents get way too, you know, yeah, I, I learned that when my, my son was in second grade and competing children were coming in with working cold fusion reactors. They, there are some <laughs> serious competitive science fair people out there. Is it your impression that it's getting, it's getting harder in science fairs to come up with something that will impress people. You, yeah, when I was a kid, um, my science fair projects were always unbelievably lame mm -hmm. because I didn't do them until the morning of the science fair. Typically, I would get a, this is an actual science fair project I did. I got a ball, it was a rubber ball, and I colored it with ink. With, that was the hardest part of the science fair, was coloring half the ball with ink, and it was called Phases of the Moon. <laughs> and I, so my whole, my whole, no, I'm not kidding, my whole project was, it was a sign that said phases of the moon, and it was a ball, and it had, I put a piece, pieces of tape around it showing you if you were looking at that part, that would be that phase. This didn't prove anything, except that I didn't do anything to do my science fair project. But then when I brought it to school, my friends, my so-called friends, immediately thought that was funny, and it's in the gym. So they take the ball and are shooting baskets. Right? So most of the time when you went by, you'd be going by all these actual projects, and then you would come to a sign that said phases of the moon and nothing was there. There was just nothing. It was like the moon was in a phase where it was just gone, you know? So that was the kind of science fair project I did. Uh, Mr. Berry is going to bring us through a couple of experiments. What, what experiment? So in our book, a kid, one of the kids named Micah, in his, for his science fair project, he decides he's going to make a nuclear Mentos, the biggest Mentos Diet Coke experiment ever performed. He gets a 55-gallon drum, big barrel, fills it with Diet Coke. Then he makes the world's biggest Mentos the nuclear Mentos, by gluing together 40,000 regular-sized Mentos. So he has a Mentos the size of a truck tire, which then he drops into. And that becomes a critical part of the plot when the nuclear Mentos goes off in this gym with this doomsday device near the end of, of science fair. Um, but I have to ask first, because it's, it's pretty dangerous, and I want to stress to the young people here that Scott and I are trained professionals. <laughs> Do not try this at home unless your parents are gone. Okay? <laughs> Scott and I, however, yeah, need to be exposed. We, we're going to have to Thank you. put on uh, scientific equipment. We're putting on our lab coats now. It's also very important. Scott, oh, thank you very much. <laughs> These, uh, the scientific name for these is, is Groucho glasses. All right. All science, always scientists always wear protective headwear. These are actually. These are called Mad Sinus wigs, and I got them on the internet. And I don't know who else has been wearing yours, Scott. I'm <laughs> anyway, okay, here we have a two-liter bottle of Diet Coke. And I'm going to ask Scott, this is a really critical part. We call it cracking the Coke. I 
Sounds good. The issue is how many Mentos to drop in. That's always the big question. The more Mentos, the higher it goes. So what do you think, kids? Ten. Okay, you'd like to see, there's a danger we'll just knock down the entire Cutler Middle School. Is that okay with you? Yeah. All right, then we'll have to take that. No, I'm going to try three because I, I don't want to just, you know, I am a Dade County taxpayer. <laughs> so whatever happens here, I will have to help pay for it. But anyway, what we need to do is count it down, and then I will drop these in. Are you ready for the countdown? Okay, go ahead, count from ten. <laughs> well, we hit the we hit the ceiling there. We don't. I didn't really think we were going to hit the actual that ceiling. That was great. <laughs> that was terrific. <laughs> I saw you laughing, Miss Wilson. Because I knew it was going to hit the ceiling. Did you really? Yeah. How many did you drop in? Three. <laughs> well, Miss Wilson, Wilson is a woman of science. She knew. She knew. She knows her. She knows her science. Yeah. Okay. The other thing we're going to do. And I haven't done this in a long time. I did this on, on television. On the, have you ever heard of the David Letterman Show? Yeah. I did this on the David Letterman Show. What it is, and it's another part of the book Science Fair, we have a, a key role played by, in the Science Fair, Barbie. <laughs> this is no ordinary Barbie doll. This is called a rollerblade Barbie, and you can't get it anymore. They don't sell it. Mattel doesn't sell it. And I'll show you why. If you watch what I do when I, when I roll her little she has little pink booties on with wheels on, regular looking wheels in the front, but the rear wheels do this. Ah, they spark. They are actually like from a lighter, flint, flint wheels, sparking wheels. It's a sparking Barbie doll. This turned out to be not such a great idea. And, not even, and again, as, as Ms. Wilson would point out, it's not really an experiment. <laughs> we already know what's going to happen. Well, I was going to ask Ms. Wilson, what, what's the scientific utility yeah, of this experiment? A, an ex a reason for this. Make it educational, Miss Wilson. Uh, setting Barbie on fire? No, it's not. We're not setting Barbie on fire. Setting a T-shirt on fire. Oh, the T-shirt on fire. Oh, okay. Then uh, I. Th there's oxygen or something. Very um, important scientific concepts at play. There is energy. There is transfer of energy. There's a law of conservation of energy. Wait, go, Miss Wilson. We need Miss Wilson. Oh boy, absolutely. Now, I'm going to ask Scott yeah. to spray. A lot, a lot of hairspray because my experience was it's hard to get it to work okay. without a lot of hairspray. But we're also going to have um, somebody standing close by with a fire extinguisher. Let's underscore: there's an assistant principal standing by with a fire no, extinguisher. A Actually, he does have a camera in his hand. He's taking he's taking pictures. Oh, yeah. All right, okay, oh, yeah. yeah. No, right, right one spot. We're going to do one spot. Okay. All right, let's just see if it works. Let's give it a try. We need more. We need more hairspray on there, Scott. We might use another kind, too. We're not getting combustion. Okay, ready? There it goes. Yeah! Look at that. Okay, we have that. Ta-da! <laughs> now, students, haven't we learned a lot about science here today? <laughs> did um, anybody have any questions about the book or? Why did you decide to make most of the names without vowels. Yeah, you know, when we, the, the names of the, the country that the bad guys come from is called Perskstan. 
and the bad guys are named Mercy and Verst and Dankel. And that was sort of the beginning. We were just kind of running our hands on the keyboards there. We, you know, we thought later on we'll come up with real names for these because there's almost no vowels in the, most of the names. They're almost impossible to say. But then we sort of came to like the names and we left them that way because they just sound so weird. Um, Ridley, my co-author's idea was that we would change the way we spelled the co country every time we spelled it, so it would never be spelled the same way twice, but we decided that would be pushing it a little too far. Yeah. Have you set anything else on fire except clothing? No, I have not, and, and I again want to stress how important it is to not go around setting fire to things. This was strictly for science. Miss Wilson, we thank you for letting us spew Diet Coke and flames all over your, your classroom. Thank you, Dave. My pleasure. Dave Barry, his new book, along with Ridley, his co-writer, Ridley Pearson, is Science Fair. And thanks so much to the students in, the, in Miss Wilson Science Classroom of the Cutler Ridge Middle School in Cutler Bay, Florida. Thanks so much. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Time for sports. And just when you may have thought you could turn to the sports pages to escape the economic headlines, General Motors announced this week it's parting ways with Tiger Woods, which has many wondering how long can the big three automakers keep investing in sports events? We're joined now by our own Howard Bryant. Howard, thanks for being with us. Hey, Scott, did you enjoy your four turkey Thanksgiving? <laughs> four turkeys? <laughs> yeah, the, yeah, the one that was on the table in the three football games we retreated to. Oh, I, saw, I, I, saw, I saw a little of Dallas and Seattle, as a matter of Let's fact. Let's just put it this way. The Tennessee Titans and the Detroit Lions, we ended up watching the Westminster Dog Show. <laughs> Horrible. Now there's some athletes, that Westminster <laughs> Dog Show. Uh, how, how significant is this uh, decision by General Motors? I mean, is this the uh, the canary in the coal mine, if you please? Well, they're broke, and it's a pretty smart move. I, you know, during the World Series, Scott, I was talking with the uh, owners of the Philadelphia Phillies and of the Tampa Bay Rays, and the big question throughout the throughout the World Series had been: Is sports recession proof? Is sports going to be the one area where you don't feel the economic impact of what's happening? Yeah. And the answer is clearly no, especially with this kind of news. And I think that you're starting to see already the the effect that, uh, that this crisis is going to have, especially when it comes to sponsorship in golf and sponsorships with, with other sports that really rely on those big hitters to, to, bring, the, the, to bring the dollars to the table. And, and I think you're going to see it here. I think you're also going to see it when it comes to when, when it comes to uh, next year. I, I've spoken with folks in, in baseball. Even the Boston Red Sox have have said that they've sold out every baseball game since May 15, 2003, and, and their sellout streak is in jeopardy. And if those corporate dollars aren't going to be coming in as as strongly and as yeah. consistently as they have over the years. We're going to be in for a very interesting sports landscape. I mean, what does it mean if people are no longer playing, uh, companies are no longer willing to pay, uh, I'll fill in the blank here, a billion dollars for a 60-second ad during the Super Bowl? 
Well, I don't know if it's going to have that much impact on our day-to-day lives, but certainly when it comes to competition for uh, for television contracts or when, let's face it, it's the TV dollars that pay everybody's salaries. And although you don't really see it right now, because obviously the New York Yankees are going to try to sign CC Sabathia to a $145 million contract, mm-hmm. in, in general, I think over the next two or three years, you may see much, much lower bids for uh, you know, for the TV contracts for, for sports, you may end up seeing a little bit less uh, in terms of uh, in, in terms of maybe some of the golf sponsorships or some of the tennis sponsorships for some for some of their major events. In general, I don't think that the fan is going to see a whole lot of, of difference at the General Motors Tiger Woods level, but you may actually see some difference in terms of attendance and and season tickets and some of those things because the, the dollars just may not be there. And very quickly, you know, we're about to talk to Frank Gifford about his book in the 1958 NFL championship game. Game game has sure changed in 50 years, hasn't it? Well, it's fascinating, and I'm, I'm so happy that Frank is doing this because it's just it, you you need that institutional memory to remind you of where the game has been, and, and especially when it comes to some of the issues of his day where the, the game was just becoming integrated. It was just becoming a business. You, you, you were just about to get a rival league with the AFL coming in. And, and, and football had always been so different from the other sports because baseball was king. And I remember when guys used to, when baseball players wanted to play football, they, the, the baseball scouts would say, son, do you want a major league contract or a limp? It's a lot different now. Thanks very much, Howard. Thank you. Pro football used to be a second-tier sport, not as popular as baseball or as glamorous as horse racing. They played their games in baseball stadiums that were imperfectly and sometimes absurdly aligned for football. The locker rooms were cold and grimy, halfbacks and tackles made about as much as electricians and plumbers, which a lot of pro football players actually were for most of the year because no one could make a living just playing football just a few weeks a year. The college game had class. The pro game was considered just a little seedy. That was already changing in the mid-1950s as television made the game vivid and dramatic for millions. December 28, 1958, the New York Giants and the Baltimore Colts played a game that turned pro football into America's sport, maybe even a metaphor for the country. Frank Gifford was a Giants running back in that game, of course a broadcaster for many years thereafter. He's now looked up all his old teammates on both sides of the line to write a new book along with Peter Richmond, The Glory Game, how the 1958 NFL championship changed football forever. Frank Gifford joins us from New York. Thanks so much for being with us. Well, Scott, delighted to be with you. Were all of your old teammates, as I said, pointedly on both sides of the line, glad to hear from you? Well, I wish I could say all of them, Scott, but as you well know, uh, for the New York Giants, there were 17 that are still alive, and there were, I found, 18 Baltimore Colts. It was uh, interesting for me because... I wanted to talk about the football game and uh, in getting the background for the book. And mm-hmm. so many of them wanted to uh, talk about many other things. And uh, primarily, they wanted to know where the other guys were. If I could get you to take us back to that day, December 28, 1958. First quarter, you took a short pass from the giant quarterback, Charlie Connerly. Big Daddy Lipscomb. I'm being tenuous with my language, Frank, because this is painful. Um, you mean about my fumble? That's it, yes. There we go. Well, I had actually two fumbles. Uh, we were going in yeah. for a touchdown when I fumbled the ball. Later on, I would fumble uh, again, 
and Baltimore would recover and they would take it in for a touchdown. And that, that would have made a major difference in that game. There were six fumbles in that game, though. So And you only had two of them. Of the last two. <laughs> yes, okay. I didn't dominate. <laughs> the game ends in a tie. The referees come over to individual sidelines and, and tell you there's going to be an overtime period. Had, had you even heard of an overtime period at that no, point? No, I, I think Sam expressed it perfectly. So Sa- what, Sam Huff? What, yeah. what the hell's overtime? <laughs> we ultimately got the captains out in the middle of the field, and they flipped the coin, and away we went again. Tell me what Vince Lombardi, the man famous for saying winning isn't everything, it's the only thing, what did Vince Lombardi say to you in that moment? Well, he made it easier between us, and uh, Vince Lombardi was not the Vince Lombardi that we have heard about so much, the tyrant and the, and all of that. He was a friend as an assistant coach, and later he had become all these other things when he went to Green Bay. But he came up to me and put his arm around me, and I, I really I felt, I felt terrible because uh, I, I had lost the game. Uh, no question. He put his arm around me and he said, Frank, don't take it so hard. Don't feel so bad. We would never have been here without you. It made it better. What really hurt was my father had watched, was watching me for the first time ever to play a professional football game. It, it was very tough for him. Uh, the best thing about it, he sat with Twit Shore and they had a little flask and he felt a hell of a lot better than I did when he got <laughs> to the locker room. <laughs> Has it remained with me? Uh, yeah, of course it has. And yeah. uh, like uh, so many other losses that uh, I probably was responsible for, I like to think maybe that I also won a few. What changed about football on that day? Something about that game just caught people's imagination. And Scott, if I had to really pin it down, I just I'd, I'd talk, talked about the individuals that were involved. People all of a sudden began to wonder who these people were. What were, what were, they, what were they like individually? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sports reporters had never covered the person, had never done any up-close and personal features on him, so to speak. And uh, all of a sudden, the media got involved, the print press got involved, and they were doing features, and Johnny Unitas became a national hero. And all of a sudden, they discovered uh, a game that uh, is unbelievable at its growth today. Frank, may I ask, are there still times when you're dreaming or maybe having some problems sleeping you don't fumble the ball? <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> and it, and, it, and it usually, <laughs> I usually wake up and, and go down and look at my scrapbook <laughs> and look up the part that says, Frank Gifford didn't fumble. <laughs> In a funny way, over the past 50 years, have you become teammates with both teams, the guys you played with on the Giants and the ones who were your opponents on the Colts? I really have, and particularly after I started looking these guys up. Cliff Livingston, for instance, he didn't know where Harlan Savari was, his counterpart, the other linebacker. And so I had already talked to Harlan, so I gave him Harlan's phone number. And so Harlan called back and said, hey, just talk to Cliff. And all of a sudden I find Bob Schnelker. He's down in Florida. And Bob wanted to know where uh, Dick Modulewski was. And uh, and it, it, it went on and on. And so they, I've been kind of the... Uh, so the conduit, if you will, of putting them all back together again, and, and I've enjoyed it. Uh, it's uh, things have changed so much, but it, when you get into something that's so emotional like this, it takes you way, way back to. Uh, and if, like a friend of mine said to me, he said, "You know, you're dusting off all those old dreams." Frank, thanks so much. Well, thank you. Enjoyed it so much. Enjoyed listening to you all the time. Well, thanks. Frank Gifford uh, has written a new book with Peter Richmond, The Glory Game, How the 1958 NFL Championship Changed Football Forever. Mm-hmm.